Great to see all the, all the kids up front with, with parents. Um, some of them even paying attention. Kids are kind of on their own uh, wavelength, aren't they? They do what they want to do, what they need to do. We are so glad that the families are here today. We're so glad that all of you are here today. All around the world today, in so many places, according to so many traditions, in so many churches, there's someone, a pastor, a worship leader, stands in front because it's Easter Sunday and says, Christ is risen. And there's a few folks... Sometimes it's a whole congregation who know the response. He is risen indeed. It's, it's an affirmation that comes back at the leader. This is the day we celebrate this victory, this shocking victory when God defeated death as he sent his son to live, to die, to rise again, to vindicate the mission of Jesus Christ, a mission that would have a profound effect all, effect all around the world. But there's still a lingering question. If you believe that, if you know that, if you celebrate that, if um, you're joining into the spirit of this day with millions upon millions upon millions around the world, there's still a doubt. I don't think the doubt is usually so much about God. Is God real? Look at creation. We're amazed. Look at what's happened in history. Look at what happens in Scripture. Look at the fulfillment of prophecy. Look at the history of Jesus himself. Look at his life. Look what he did. Look who he was. Look what he taught. Listen to what he taught. Putting all of that together builds a case that's almost irresistible. And yes, of course, because we're human and because we don't have all the answers and because things come up and things we can't explain, we have questions. But I think our greatest doubts are really self-doubts. Doubts about myself. Doubts about ourselves. Because even if this victory has been won, is it? My victory too? Is it your victory? Is it something that we can claim for ourselves? Turn with me or look on the screen as we read from John chapter 21. Because there was a man, and uh, for us, you know, we, we hear the name Peter and we automatically put saint in front of it. I don't think he'd be comfortable with that. I ain't no saint. He knew what he was. He knew what had happened. And here's the rest of the story. 21 verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, 
Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Interesting that Peter and his brothers, his friends, the other disciples, seven of them all together, um, were at the sea. Well, they had, told, they had been told to go back to the sea, that they would meet, in fact, Jesus, the risen Christ, there again, another appearance they could expect. But they were back at the lake without anything else to do. Peter decided to go fishing. Now, this is like full circle, because when we first met Peter, he was fishing. He was a fisherman. That was his profession. Um, he was an expert fisherman. But he had long since left that profession to follow Jesus. He had become a disciple. There was something transformational taking place in his life. He would not go back to fishing. Would he? What's going on? Why is he returned to the lake? Why is he not um, involved in the mission of the risen Christ? Well, we don't know for sure. It's uh, kind of interesting because as we follow Peter during that last week, that fateful week, leading up to crucifixion and then, surprise, resurrection, <clears throat> Peter um, didn't fare so well. Didn't do so well. Didn't look so good. Had a kind of crisis which was as yet unresolved, even in John chapter 21 in this account. Peter had uh, stood up in front of all the disciples and Jesus on that, at that last supper and finally recognizing what Jesus was about. If you're going to a cross, if you're going to your death, if you're going to prison, wherever you're going, if there's some bad ending, I will be there with you. I assure you. He said it out loud. Peter, the one who spoke often before he could think it through. I identify with Peter. I've done that many times. And I've overpromised and seen that promise turn to panic when I realized I couldn't fulfill what I said I was going to do. Have you ever had that experience? No, I didn't think so. 
where very human and Peter's humanity comes to the, fore, the, 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 the forefront, and uh, I, I resonate with that. And I, and I wince when I hear him bragging, and when I hear him um, saying out loud what great thing he's going to accomplish, because it isn't the saying of it, it's the doing of it, it's the accomplishing of it. And Peter over-promises. And then, a few hours later, He's afraid. All of a sudden, there's a threat in the air. All of a sudden, fulfilling the promise is going to be rather costly. In fact, it's um, uncertain as to what will happen, but it can't be good. They've just taken away Jesus. They've led him away to a series of trials. And then they're beating him and scourging him and mocking him. And Peter is nearby. And at one point, apparently, they lock eyes. Apparently, Peter is nearby and Jesus is taken to another place and and they, and they turn and they see one another. And, and, and Peter is uneasy. He and the other disciples have fled. They fled the garden scene. They didn't want to be caught up in this, in this trap created by his enemies. And so Peter's promise gave way to panic. And he failed miserably. He denied he even knew the one that he had followed, that he had pledged himself to. Can you imagine that? Yes, unfortunately, we can imagine that. As harsh as we might be in criticizing Peter, to be very, very honest, we are a lot like him. We've made the pledge, we've made the promise, we've, we've professed our faith, and then somewhere along the line, something happened and we fell apart and we failed. And so Peter's at the lake, and now he goes back to the one thing he knows he can do. He wasn't very good at following Christ, as it turns out. It ended rather badly. And even though Jesus had come back from the, from the grave, and Peter had witnessed that now twice, and he was overjoyed at the victory of God, but hadn't he forfeited his right to participate in that victory? Wasn't he now excluded in terms of the future of the mission of the risen Christ? I think he went out, to the, he went out on the sea to reflect. He went out because it was familiar. He went out because he didn't know where to go. In fact, he was in such a place that no matter where he went from here, there was no road ahead. He couldn't go back and undo it. And he certainly couldn't go forward because he had proved himself to be disloyal. There was nowhere to go but back to the lake and back to the fish. And he could lose himself out there. Well, his friends were with him. Notice that, by the way. It's interesting because one of his friends, one of the disciples who was there, who's named, is, is Thomas. If you go back to the previous chapter, you know that Thomas had his own crisis of faith. It was a different kind of crisis, but, but the disciples had welcomed Thomas into their, into their gathering, even though Thomas had not been there and did not believe in the resurrection. He was an unbeliever. He was agnostic at best. And they said, Thomas, hang out with us. Stay with us. And to his credit, he did. And to their credit, they invited him. You know, it can be a bit of a damper on your, your celebration when Thomas is sitting in the corner going, I don't believe any of this stuff. This is a fairy tale. You guys are hallucinating. This is hysteria. 
I know you wish he were here, but he's not here. Dead men stay dead. Romans know how to crucify people. He's gone. I won't believe it unless I see him, unless I touch him. And they said, Thomas, we have no idea how God's going to prove himself to you, but we believe he will. Stay with us. Let's see what happens. And Thomas did. And now Thomas, who got his answer, who had his encounter with the risen Christ, is now hanging out with Peter, who's in a bit of a death spiral here. He's having a real crisis of faith, and mostly it's about doubting himself. Jesus, for certain, is alive. Peter knows that. Peter's had that encounter, but can I be part of that? And so they're out, and they're fishing, and they're fishing all night, and they catch how many fish? Not a fish. Not a single fish. And I'm sure Peter must have been thinking to himself, I can't even do this. I, I, I'm the expert fisherman. I can't even catch a single blank fish. Have the feeling in Hebrew there's a word there. And I mean, how low can you go? You're wandering away to find a little bit of uh, consolation or at least something to distract you, and you can't even get it right then. That's a human experience. That will deepen your doubt. That will create despair. And that's where Peter is. And now it's almost the end of the night. They've caught nothing. The world is beginning to wake up around them. For Peter, there is no new day. There's only more failure, more obvious reminders of how he did not complete his assignment and how he had no future. And there's a voice. There's somebody on the shore. They can't see who it is at a distance. And the voice calls out, Friends, haven't you caught any fish? Now, my first reaction, if I was on that boat, would be, is somebody taunting us out there? How many fish you guys caught? You know, some wise guy on the shore. Plenty of wise guys in this world who will taunt you when you're down, give you a hard time. But it isn't that tone, is it? It's, it's, it's a more gentle turn. Taunt, friends, friends, you don't have any fish, do you? Have you caught anything? There was something kind of um, solicitous in the tone. He's asking. It's amazing how often Jesus asks a question. For someone who knows everything, he sure asks a lot of questions. He's trying to get us to face the reality of our condition, of our, of our crisis. And the answer comes across rather simple. No. Haven't caught any. Well then, once we've admitted our need, now God can step into the gap... And Jesus, whom they don't know is Jesus yet, says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll catch some. Does that strike some, anybody as an odd kind of suggestion? Did the fish swim on the right side of the boat? By the way, you would always, if you were right-handed, naturally throw your net on the left side of the boat because you're swinging over that direction. This is, this is an odd kind of gesture. But they did. Got nothing to lose. And by the way, sometimes when God asks you to do something, and it seems odd to you, doesn't make sense to you, wouldn't be your plan, wouldn't be what you would do, maybe you ought to uh, think about it because, as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? <laughs> On the other side of the boat. Not real well. What, what do we have to lose? Why not? 
Who is this guy? We don't know who he is. We're the experts, but we haven't got anything done. We don't know how to get it. So they did it, and all of a sudden the fish are crawling over each other to get into the net, or whatever fish do. And it's loaded up with 153 fish. It's amazing. John loves to be exact. People have tried to figure out what's the numerology there. Let's see, that's 44 times 12 plus... Maybe there were just 153 fish. Maybe it wasn't symbolic. Maybe it was factual. Just then, John, who's the most sensitive, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved because he felt so deeply his love. Not the only one he loved, but John, being John, felt it personally and wasn't shy about saying it. I'm the one he loves. I feel his love. John, the most sensitive, says, you know who that is, Peter? You know who that is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's here. Again, as he promised. We might have forgotten him, but he hasn't forgotten us. There he is on the shore. That's Jesus. Well, John is the, is the first one to, to, to sense what's going on. The first one to perceive, and Peter's always the first one to act. Yes? Some things never change. So Peter dives into the water. I don't know if he regretted that later. I mean, he had a long way to swim in, 100 yards or so. I don't even know if he beat the boat. But anyway, he was, he was, he was heading in. And when he got to shore, Peter, who always had something to say, apparently had nothing to say at that moment. The rest of the disciples came. Peter and Jesus had not yet had that personal conversation. You know it's coming. It has to come. There's just something unresolved. Have you had that conversation with him? I mean, personally, I don't mean sitting in, a, in amongst a, a mass of people where you can kind of hide, but I mean, have you had that personal conversation? Has, has he called out to you and say, how's it going in your life? How are your dreams doing? Um, where are you hurting? And he's talking to you. He's talking to you directly and personally. This is the risen Christ. And he pursues us. And he seeks us out and he serves us. Notice that Jesus is cooking up a breakfast for them on the seashore. Wouldn't you think the risen Christ, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, has something better to do than to, than, than, than to you know, sit into the sand and, and to get his hands dirty and, and to build a fire and act like a servant and, and cook up some breakfast? And he says, uh, bring some of the fish you've caught. It's interesting here because Jesus already had fish. Now, how do you suppose he caught the fish? I guess he doesn't have any problem with that. And the disciples get to contribute their fish. By the way, he's the one who found their fish, so it's all his fish. And it reminds us again of the, of, of the grace of God. Everything that we have, that we think we've earned, that we've worked hard for, it's all grace. It's all about a gift. He's cooking up breakfast for them. Friends, come and have some breakfast. I'm cooking you breakfast. The Lord of glory is cooking breakfast. That's his heart. That's God's love. It's amazing to catch him in this moment. They eat. It might have been a little bit awkward for Peter because he hasn't had the conversation yet. After breakfast, Jesus says, Peter, can we talk? Peter said, no, I think i got to be somewhere. Yes, Lord, we can talk. And you know, 
here it comes. I'm going to get blasted, Peter is thinking. I deserve it. I failed him. I bailed out at exactly the wrong moment. I said I wouldn't. I did the very thing I said I wouldn't do. I'm a failure. I'm humiliated. <clears throat> Here it comes. I deserve this, so I'll take my medicine. He didn't have a choice. You know, Jesus has this incredible, this uncanny ability to expose the reality of who we are without humiliating us. Because that isn't his desire, to humiliate to condemn, to destroy. No, it's exactly the opposite. Once we admit our need, once our hearts begin to open, once we take <clears throat> a risk, as Ivan said so eloquently this morning, I'm going to take a risk. I'm not a gambler, but I'm going to take this risk because I trust this person. I'm going to be open with him. And once we do that, thinking that we're going to be buried by the guilt and shame of it, we get a totally different kind of reception. Jesus is just waiting for our hearts to open up. There is no accusation. There is no reminder of Peter's bad, bad night that he had. There is only a question. Again, a question. And it's a question that draws Peter out. Peter? Peter. My dear friend. Do you love me? It's interesting, he said, do you love me more than these? Commentators have wrestled with that, more than these. Like, do you love me more than the other disciples? Jesus doesn't tend to do competition like that. Who loves me the most? Doesn't do that. Love, love me more than these, as in these things that are part of your life. This fishing gear, this boat, this business, your success, your sense of security. Do you love me more than all of this? That's all I need to know. You know how much I love you, Peter. I called you in the first place. You were nobody from nowhere. I called you. I gave you an identity. I gave you a new life. Peter, I've forgiven you. I went to the cross. I died for you as well as the rest of these. You know how much I love you. Now, for a relationship to take place, you have a response to give. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. You know everything, Lord. I love you. He asked him again, do you love me? Yes. Yes, I, I just said that. I, I love you. And a third time, Peter, you who betrayed me, you who denied me three times, I'm asking you for the third time, do you love me? Let's complete the loop here. Let's, let's get past all this stuff that happened. Let's walk into a future that's filled with grace for you, Peter. And not only filled with grace, because as soon as Peter says, I love you, and by the way, he's not making any big, bold claims right now about what that means. He's just saying, from my heart to your heart, Jesus. And that's what it is. It's a heart-to-heart -heart relationship. I love you. I love you. And Jesus says then, Welcome back. This God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, this God of grace, this God of extravagant mercy is inviting you like he invites Peter. Welcome home. Welcome back. But don't we have to go through? No, I already took care of that, Jesus is saying. I took care of it on the cross. My love covers a multitude of sins, including yours. The worst you've ever done. 
Here's what he's asking Peter, and here's what he's asking all of us. He's asking us, and he's showing us, how he's going to take us past our guilt, all the things we've done, and our shame. Shame is much deeper than guilt. To be guilty means I've done something wrong. To be ashamed means I am somebody wrong. How do you get past that? Guilt can be forgiven. How do you get past shame? There's got to be a really powerful reaffirmation for you to get past shame. Because shame is deep. Shame invalidates you as a person. And the solution is not to become shameless. Do you know people who are shameless? They do shameful things and they feel no shame. That's not the solution. There's nowhere to go. You can't live with the shame and you can't live without a sense of shame. You need to be renamed. You need a brand new name. You need a brand new relationship with God who takes you out of that and says, no, I'm replacing that old identity, that old failed Peter with someone who's going to be a shepherd, who's going to feed my sheep, who's going to go out on a mission And you are empowered now, Peter, to do that because we're in relationship again. And Peter fell into his arms. And Peter became this amazing man. Never again promising too much. But now living up to those promises he makes. And recognizing that even when he stumbles, as he will, because he's still Peter, that that too is forgiven and he is accepted right where he is. The shame and the guilt have been rolled away. And Peter has now announced his devotion. And it's from his heart this time. It's not for show. It's not to make an impression. It's not to keep somebody kind of, you know, off his case. He's now saying it because that's who he really is. He is wholly devoted to this one who has given him everything, including his life back. And now he has a sense of purpose. He's been drifting all night long, drifting and discouraged. Now... He's on a mission. Now he knows why he was born into this world. Now he knows what God's will is for him in this life. He doesn't know all the details. He doesn't need to know all the details. He belongs wholly now to God in Christ. What does this scenario mean to you? Can you relate to Peter? Peter who struggled mightily, who was a man of extremes at times, who kept a lot to himself on the inside and when he spoke didn't always speak the truth. Can you relate to him? I think I've failed God. Well, of course you have. Because you're human and because you're a sinner. Like, oh, Of course you have failed God. But thank God that isn't the end of the story. That's just the beginning because of what Christ has done. That's what the Easter victory means. And Easter is for everyone. Peter thought it might be for the whole world, but not for him. There are times when I've wondered. I can imagine God forgiving you, but not sure what what he'll do with me. But the risen Christ, his arms are outstretched. And he wanted this gospel, this good news, to go out to the world. And Peter, you're one of the best people to take this gospel out because it's impacted you. You've got no gospel to share if you haven't received the good news, if it hasn't changed your life. And given you a whole new identity and a whole new destiny and now a sense of mission. Put yourself into this scene. Put yourself in Peter's place. The victory of God in Christ at Easter is not just a theological truth, not just a philosophical abstract. 
It's a personal offer to you. Do you love me, he asks you. What is your answer? Let's pray. Dear Lord, this is an interesting moment. An interesting moment, Lord, that calls us to reflect. And even with all this commotion on stage, we're going to reflect. We are going to reflect because it's too important to pass over this moment. As we prepare to continue to worship now, the question is, will our worship be from the heart or just according to script? Do we worship because someone asks us to or because we cannot help but worship the one who has given us such grace? Lord, help us. We get lost like Peter. We go back to things that are familiar to us, that make us feel better even while we're struggling. But we haven't resolved the issue until we have a personal encounter with you. Why not right now? Why not today? Why not in this moment? Because we're thinking about it. And we know that a lot of things we've tried don't work. And we can't get away from you and find the joy that we we long for, that we were born to experience, that has been your will for us. Only as we come back, only as we respond to the love that is beyond, it's just beyond understanding, Lord, that you love us like this. That you could take Peter, this broken man, this broken down human being, who's kind of lost at sea, and turn him into someone who becomes a powerful voice who's calling others to give themselves to Jesus who will stand up at Pentecost just a few days later and fearlessly proclaim not himself but the risen Christ the one who was crucified for us because of our failure, experienced that and went to death for us and defeated death by taking it on and forgiving our sins and pushing back against the evil that seems to overrun this world. All of that was happening, but so personally for Peter and for us is this cross, this resurrection, this new life. And now, what are we going to do? Are we going to move past this moment? Respond with open hearts? Or not? Lord, help us. Put this mercy right in front of us so we can't miss it. Let us hear the question. Do you love me? And let us respond and let us move. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.